the smartest people that I've ever met in technology. Gary Flake and Adam Bosworth, who are Bosworth, who are both both with Salesforce.com. And I'll ask each one of them to introduce themselves. So uh, Adam, why don't we start with you? Tell us about your background and what do you do for Salesforce? My background primarily is building democratized, expensable platforms. I built one at Citibank for helping people manage their businesses, got about 100 MISs in place, built one of the first spreadsheets, but with extensible programmability, Quattro. Went to Microsoft, helped build the, um, the way to make it easy to build Windows and client server applications. Um, then did the same thing for the web. Um, went to um, BA Systems and helped make it easy to build enterprise Java applications. Went to Google and made it easy to build collaborative apps, Google Docs. And then in the meantime, I have been collaborating with and helping Mark all along at Salesforce and finally came to Salesforce to help make an easy, extensible platform for sort of this big mobile monitored world we now live in. So what is your, so, so tell us just briefly a little bit more about your role at Salesforce. Um, <clears throat> I really have two roles. One is to make sure that we're doing the organic innovation we need to do, particularly around, again, platform. And then the other one specifically is to make sure that we build the right platform and the right product for what we can call in the IoT cloud, which is a platform for enabling customers to deliver literally billions or tens of billions of events a day from their customers and their customers' devices to a place where they can effortlessly digest that, distill that, and use the digested, distilled 360 profile about that as context to process all those events in near real time and cause the right business value to be generated from it, to get the right things to happen, the right service events, the right opportunities, the right information of the right customers and partners um, to actually make their customers' lives better. Okay, and Gary Flake, tell us about your background and what are you doing at Salesforce today? Yeah, so um, I've been working in machine learning, data science, um, internet-related things, those those kind of areas for for almost thirty years. I my my original background, I, my my PhD is in is in computer science and in machine learning. Um, in the nineties, I, I I spent most of my time in different types of research labs uh, for you know in, in the government, uh, university, uh, industrial labs. So I became something of a of a student of failed R&D research models. I, um, like a lot of people with a machine learning background, I made the transition to looking at a lot of data on the web in the late 90s. And in um, you know, post 2000, I, uh, I, I had a lot of different roles in, in, you know, in some very important companies. I was lucky to be a part of, uh, I was the chief science, science officer of Overture, which was the company that invented paid search. Yahoo acquired Overture and I founded and ran Yahoo Research Labs. I was a technical fellow at Microsoft where I ran um, a group called Live Labs, and uh, I did a startup, and now I'm actually the CTO of Search and Data Science at Salesforce, where I run, uh, along with a phenomenal team, uh, the entire search infrastructure for Salesforce. And um, I, along the way, I also wrote a book called The Computational Beauty of Nature in the, in the 90s, which is a textbook um, focused on complex systems and adaptation. So what we have then between you two is the, the intersection in a sense of internet of things as well as search technologies and, and analytics. And so how do these intersect? I'll, I'll jump in here and say each is the yin to the other's yang in some sense. You know, each is fuel uh, for, for the other. And I would add, um, you know, machine learning, AI, data science to, to that mix as well. What what we what's really interesting about the current time that we that we're living in right now is that we've seen the finally this great convergence mm -hmm. of data that is uh, you know a side effect of of many different internet services and, and soon to be accelerated even further with IoT. We have seen um, compute power 
through the ubiquitous deployment of cloud-based infrastructure. And we've also seen the development or refinement of, of different types of algorithms for making sense of these things. And so in combination, the, the compute infrastructure and the data um, becomes the fuel that makes uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence much more productive. And, and in turn, these machine learning and AI systems have an ability to, to produce massive quantities of data on their own, empowering a new generation of devices and services to, to be op operating somewhat autonomously on the web. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, as a concrete example, I met yesterday with a large electric company. They have 33 million smart meters. They generate power from multiple countries in multiple different ways and modalities. And you know, we're busy focusing on how do we get the data in about what's going on with those meters and the generators and the power and where's the power. But what they need as much as that is they need to then apply data science, both predictive and intelligent, to figure out how do they best balance that, how can they best um, learn which customers will use what when, how can they best actually figure out how to encourage customers to change their power consumption behavior in ways that would be more efficient. Now, everything that they asked me about was about data science, data analytics, and big and predictive analytics and big data. And they're a company that will be generating about 33 billion events um, a day. Um, for I'm sorry, not a day. Um, 33 billion events. Um, uh, that's right, a day for us, pretty quickly, um, just from their meters, and then growing from there. So, you know, we're seeing just really large amounts of data come in and yet the customers are really interested in saying, it's too much data to look up by hand, it's too much data to understand. How do we take data science at really large scale and figure out what we need to, to start creating the kinds of benefits from this data that we want? So I think it's exactly correct. The, the, the change to a mobile monitored world has created a huge demand for the data science, for the predictive analytics that, um, is necessary to try and control and manage this kind of information. Now, one common thread that you just mentioned is the, the application of data science and analytics to solving customer problems. So maybe can you elaborate on that? Um, well, I think Gary does a better job, but you know, just quickly, you know, what they want to do is they Every customer that I speak to, literally without exception, wants to predict behavior on the part of customers, employees, and partners. What were they likely to do? What are they likely not to do? Um, what segment do they belong in? What are they likely to purchase? What problems they... They also want to predict behavior on the part of devices. When will this machine need to be serviced? When will this machine break down? What is the likelihood that we'll have a failure case? Um, you know, when... Is it likely that this thing actually needs more power or a different environment? So there's a lot of prediction that's about behavior and a lot of prediction that's about hardware and physics. Um, they want to do real-time analysis on some of the events where they need to respond really, really quickly in the event that something goes wrong. Um, they want you know, to actually then test alternate strategies. And they, what they all want, the holy ground, this is sort of completely up Gary's alley, from his PhD and from everything he's done since. Probably most importantly is they want automated self-improvement systems. They want a system where the more data you get, the better the system behaves and the more you know how it works, the better it does so that every time you're trying something, that information is continuously making the system better and better. Gary, you should take over because you have more experience with this. Well, that's generous of you. But um, one thing I'll add, I'll make, a, I'll make a, something of an analogy between um, the phase of development that we're in right now and what has happened historically, for example, with transportation. So a couple hundred years ago, if you wanted to cross the country, there were you know, very few options for you, but you may have ended up doing something like a stagecoach where the person that was responsible for transporting you or helping you get across the company had a very high touch relationship with, with uh, typically with, with his passengers. And the that that path of being a stagecoach operator was was arduous it was difficult you knew all of your passengers and you know it had limited success later on trains made their way and the role of the conductor uh, was such that the conductor may not actually know 
everyone that's on the train, but they're, they're responsible for taking a bigger volume, a bigger mass across a greater distance at a higher speed. Now we have, uh, then, then airplanes came, and now we're doing, uh, it's a mode of transportation that no human, uh, that there's any sort of natural analog for, for a human. Humans don't fly. Humans don't naturally in any way move at that kind of speed. And now when you take a look at the latest generation of aircraft, in some ways, the, the, what, the, what the pilot is doing is no longer flying anymore. They aren't actually controlling something in the most advanced planes that are actuating the different portions of the wing to, to, to have the, 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 you know, the, the changing the angle or anything like that. What they're doing is they're, they're interacting with the plane through a metaphor. The metaphor is I want to go in that direction or that direction. And the system knows how to translate that into, into actuated movements of the, of the physical equipment. So in that process, what has happened is that we've we've gone through a phase where transportation resembled something that we once naturally did, but now transportation is completely unlike how we as as humans actually naturally move. And the role of the pilot is actually very different. And as a result, instead of uh, merely being able to go one times, you know, like twice as fast or three times as fast, we can travel now hundreds of times, you know, faster than what any human could do, um, you know, with, with transatlantic flights, vastly further with more people than, than, uh, than, you know, nature would have ever allowed us to produce. Now, connecting the dots between that metaphor or that, 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 that uh, analogy to, to where we are today, the, the, the person that is interacting through a big data, a data science, an analytic or a machine learning system, in the past, they would have to look at individual records, individual things, just like a stagecoach operator and, you know, somehow having to negotiate over every single bump on the road. Um, as, uh, as things have became, become more automated, the ability to scale to more entities, more pieces of data it has gotten um, uh, even more powerful. But now with automation and machine learning and analytics all riding on top of a larger system, the role of, of an analyst sitting on top of this, of this information is no longer to look at every piece of data piecemeal. It's, it's to actually help guide a system to yield a richer, uh, an ever richer form of analysis, an ever richer form of insights. And this is the sort of thing where what the human is doing in this is no longer about um, the manual labor, if you will. It's much more supervisory in terms of teasing out um, hidden, hidden patterns, hidden, hidden signals. And in such, and, and in that way, what one person can do with a, with a new modern uh, analytic system is akin to what a pilot can do on an aircraft. We can now do things at a scale, at a speed, at a volume, and velocity that that no human could ever naturally do with the power of their own mind, but by working through a big data and machine learning system, we get a, a, a multiplier on what human can do that is perhaps thousands or millions of times more productive and more powerful than what a human alone could do. Adam, this, this notion of the relationship of the human to the data and to the technology. Maybe you can elaborate on that because that seems to be an indicator of where our future is headed. Well, I, my favorite example, and funnily enough, very apt is it because this actually happened this week again, is my wife has a monitored car and a mobile app for that car. And periodically, mysteriously, this light comes on, which is the engine light. And she knows that the car is monitored. And so her point of view is whatever sensors, whatever computers inside the car are figuring out that the engine light is on, should also be known by the car vendor. And then therefore they should know what's wrong with it, how long it will take to fix it, which dealers can fix it, who has what availability, understand her schedule. And have automatically, before she ever sees the light, have suggested to her that she needs to go there and get a loaner and drop off the car. 
And what you have there is an expectation failure because the expectations, my wife is not technical, are if you're monitoring something, you are predictably intelligent about it. If you are monitoring something, you're watching 24 by seven, you are smarter than any human, you can scale in the ways Gary just said. And if anything is about to go wrong or gone wrong, you have already figured out what to do and have already helped put together a plan to help before you even find out as a customer that the light is on. Obviously that's not her experience. Her experience is 10 minutes on hold. The dealer says, I don't know what's wrong, bring the car in, I have to look at it, leave the computer out of the car. And her general attitude is, well, you guys are bozos. So the human expectations have been changed profoundly by the concept of things being monitored. And they've been changed to say, if you're watching 24 by seven, then you should be able to be as smart as a human but scaled infinitely up across all the kinds of learning you know, that we just discussed. And if you don't, you know, you're not delivering to me the quality of service and support I expect. And you know, that is a very interesting time that we're in where as a human, you are now expecting these things to, to notify. You expect your smoke alarm to tell you before the battery starts beeping and waking up your kid at two in the morning. You expect the car to tell you before the engine light goes on. You know, we see these cute things now where you expect the car to park itself so because you can't get, get out of the door if you do it. That expectation is, come, is actually moving, if anything, faster than the software. Not because the software can't do it, because the companies are very slow to take advantage of the software. Gary's absolutely right. You know, Moore's Law has been unbelievably powerful in taking things that were well understood a decade or more ago but we're just not necessarily cost effective and making it possible now to scale at a completely different level. When I got to Google in 2004, you know, I, I was just stunned by how could you type in this query against a billion pages, sites, and boom, back came an answer until I went and looked at what they were doing. And really what they were doing wasn't as much brilliance as brute force. It was a brilliant application of brute force and Moore's law. And the fact that memory and computer speed had both gotten you know, massively cheaper and massively bigger and massively faster than had been true when I started in computers. And people's expectations have changed very quickly. When my son speaks to it, the echo now, if the echo doesn't understand them, he gets annoyed. His expectation is that the echo should understand them. And, you know, he's, he, he, by the time he's my age, you know, he'll be surprised a human would drive a car. In fact, forget my age. So by the time he's able to drive a car, he'll be surprised surprised that he would drive a car. I'd be surprised if you can't tell the car the directions. This kind of expectation is just moving at an extraordinary speed compared to you know, what we've seen in the last two decades before that. So Gary Flake, is that your job in a sense is to build, is to meet these kinds of expectations for your customers, essentially help your customers meet the, these expectations for, for their customers? Well, that's a that's a that's a lot of weight that you just put on my shoulders. Um, I have a lot of jobs. I wear a lot of hats, and the job that you've specifically mentioned is something that we all care about at Salesforce. So it's everyone's job, not just not just mine. It's Adam's job as well. And um, you know, it's I I love how Adam puts the you know the change in psychology that we're seeing in, in people in terms of of what is you know, how our expectations are changing and how we expect to interact with devices. I've seen it with my own kids as well. Our, our you know, my two boys are of the same generation as, as Adam's youngest. And um, I, uh, I love watching how my kids interact with Alexa, with touch interfaces and, and things like that. And they, uh, just like Adam's wife and just like, you know, my wife and everyone in my family, we all have a, our, we have an ever-increasing uh, rising, you know, bar for for what we'd like to see and i think that um you know we're at this uh interesting crossroads in the in the history of, of computer science and the history of machine learning and data and that never has so much changed so fast you know we've had a number of different um historical milestones that you know you can cite on one hand one might be the Renaissance, the Industrial Revolution, the invention of the, the printing press, the uh, telecommunications, you know, all these different revolutions that have happened in, in, in other times. But the, uh, what's happening right now is simply unprecedented. I, I think 
in a large part what's happened, it can be characterized by the following um, kind of a little, little pithy story. Back when I was working um, on my PhD, say, in, you know, in the early 90s uh, in machine learning, a lot of us used to say that neural networks and machine learning were the second best way of doing almost anything. And that was true, and that um, you could handcraft a solution that uh, would be better than what a neural network or uh, some other machine learning system could do. Um, but uh, the the ability to take a certain toolbox like the machine learning toolbox and apply it across multiple domains and come up with something that was good enough for most applications, that was powerful. But it wasn't, it wasn't revolutionary because again, it was the second best way of solving almost anything. What has changed now and what is truly mind blowing to me is that machine learning approaches for a wide variety of problems are, are on their way to becoming the first and the best solution for almost everything. And so when you take a look at lots of different minor revolutions that we've experienced. So for example, you know, we went from this point where uh, speech to text just didn't seem to work. And you know, that was the state of the, the world you know, 15 years ago. It was, it was clunky, it was awkward, and most people who tried to do speech, you know, the spoken word to text, uh, quickly got frustrated with it and, and didn't use it. And now, um, because of the ubiquity of handheld phones and the data that has come from people just speaking in them, that virtuous cycle of collecting data, analyzing it, producing better algorithms and better solutions has yielded speech-to-text systems that are you know, almost uh, uh, at the same level of humans in terms of their ability to tease out words and vocabulary given um, a variety of different audio sources and a variety of different contexts. And so that's, that's almost magical to see that, that transition happen because it's happening not just in, in the domain of speech, but we're also seeing it in machine translation, we're seeing it in self-driving cars, we're seeing it in a wide variety of domains. And so while it is an interesting moment of time right now where we still can be surprised, our expectations can be, we can, we can be let down by our own expectations because we expect, you know, the, the cloud to be smarter than, than it is sometimes. We're at this threshold where the next thing that happens is it's going to have capabilities and be able to do things that will, 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 will over-deliver. It'll be smarter than what we expected instead of, you know, um, failing. So I think um, in a lot of ways, I tell people right now is the most interesting moment in the history of the universe uh, to, to be working in computer science, to be a programmer or working uh, in the cloud in some way. And I think, I think this, this particular window of time will go down in history as, as a fairly magical moment. And uh, Adam, so what are the implications of this for the things that you're working on around Internet of Things and collecting that data and analyzing that data? We're, I mean, the implications are that we need to do three things at once. We need to provide our customers with the ability to effortlessly listen to digest and respond with context um, to their data. So that's, that's step number one. But that, because um, while Gary is absolutely right that machine learning is increasingly becoming the best system, you need a fair amount of signal and a fair amount of data for it to really work reasonably well. And sometimes you have to jumpstart that data. Um, for example, um, you know, if being, you know, the car vendor were actually going to start taking proactive actions, it would probably want to take a bunch of different choices and figure out which were working best and be learning from the outcomes of those actions. The second thing is we need to enable not just our, our employees, our data scientists, but our customers' data scientists. We, it, it is becoming a fundamental part of the data processing paradigm. When I draw now data processing, I start with ingestion and I talk about how do you do ETL and ultimately produce a 360 profile across this huge activity lake and this huge set of data coming in. But then I show um, this virtuous cycle between the data science, both taking this activity lake and the, and the data profile as of the time these activities occurred, 
computing the things it wants to compute and then updating the 360 profiles with the intelligence that it can glean with the proposals, the actions, the predilections that it can figure out. And only then do you start to actually do segmentation and try and figure out who's doing what, because these tools are essential to both influence what they do and to describe who should do what. So data science has become an integral part of the data processing cycle in a way that it absolutely wasn't as recently as you know, when I left Microsoft in 99. And you can't really talk about data processing anymore without talking about this being part of the cycle. And, you know, Gary, I think said it accurately earlier with his analogy. There's just too much data and too many responses and too many intelligent processes running at too large a scale to have humans handling each one. You know, we're talking about things where a single one of our customers is generating billions of events a day to us. At that point, you absolutely have to have automated intelligence deciding what to do. You cannot have a human stop and look at this, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, the way the stage code analogy works and say, well, looks to me like you should, you know, clean your carburetors, assuming you still had carburetors. Instead, all of this has to be automated feedback because it just won't scale otherwise. So, I think, you know, when I, when I have NSBs and NISAs in college and they're all reasonably technical, and one thing I told all of them is, Make sure you study data science. Make sure you study machine learning because largely speaking, I completely with Gary, agree with Gary that algorithms, while important, are increasingly less important than understanding the specific set of algorithms that are about how do you automatically learn from data, um, which is so critical now. We have a, a question from Twitter and Arsalan Khan is asking about how do you make this available to customers who are not data scientists, who just simply want to use this data. And so what kind of burden does that put on you and what do you go through thinking about the translation to customer use? I'd like to uh, take a stab at answering that and, and I wanna riff off of what Adam actually just said. It's true that um, normal people, um, you know, that it's 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 not necessarily reasonable for uh, to 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 push down on on our customers that everyone has to become a data scientist. Um, what we're seeing, though, is something that that Adam alluded to, and I want to give a concrete example of it. I I think of this what I'm about to describe as closing the loop. It's really the creation of the feedback loop as a fundamental part of, of, of the application's architecture. That, so pull that in mind uh, just for a moment. And think back to one of the earliest, maybe the, the first time that you used your phone to do uh, speech to text again. You were trying to dictate a text message or something else. In the earliest days of using text to speech on the phone, um, what would happen is it would make mistakes with a greater frequency than what we see today. And you would have to, you know, use your finger to press on, on the word that was incorrectly uh, converted and make the correction. And sometimes uh, you would just delete the text and put in what it should have been. Other times it got a little bit smarter and it would ask, you know, which of these, you know, homonyms did you, did you mean? That that little piece of UI right there, where um, not only are you taking the input from, from the user, not only are you giving an answer that is tentative, but you're instrumenting the response from the user, the feedback as to whether the, you know, that, and, and that is a signal as to whether the output was correct or not, or could, could have been improved or not. That right there was in some ways the critical architectural moment for a lot of these machine learning systems, because it became part of the application itself to retrain it, to correct the system. And people probably didn't even realize it at the time that when they made the corrections on speech-to-text systems, they were actually becoming participants in a huge machine learning system that was making uh, speech-to-text systems uh, vastly more accurate than they ever had been before. And now you multiply that by the billions of people that have phones that are speaking into their phones and interacting that with them in that, in that way. And suddenly you have a treasure trove of data, the likes of which would have been impossible to have gathered merely a year earlier or five years earlier. That data of spoken words, 
to the tentative answer of what the text should be and the correction given by a human times billions. That's the sort of fuel that you need to power a machine learning system. So in answer to your question, what, what do we do? How do we make things much more accessible? Well, in the future, I think that what we're going to find is that a lot of systems, whether it's enterprise software or consumer or in the healthcare or other domains, are going to have that property that you will interact with the system, it will give you an answer, and you might feel compelled to correct it or refine it or give a thumbs up or a thumbs down on what the response was, and that will be instrumented. And that will be instrumented times a billion and by framing the application in that way, it will be self-improving. And it will be improved not just by your own interactions. Yes, it'll learn to mirror and, and build something of an implicit model of what you like and don't like. So scenarios like personalization are possible. But when you, when you multiply that across whole populations, it will be learning the collective wisdom of all the people who are interacting with it. So it's that kind of feedback mechanism that uh, will become, I think, the default way that people come to interact and learn and improve uh, so that you don't have to be a data scientist, you don't have to be a PhD in machine learning in order to, to get the benefit. So mine is a little different. Um, I mean, as I said, my background is trying to democratize platforms. And, you know, frankly, the current state of data science is one I wrestle with. I completely agree with Gary's premise. And in fact, one of the core things we've done in the IoT cloud that we've built is we've made it every possible outcome that comes out of every rule that you write, you can signal basically whether or not this yielded a better or worse result. So we've created an automatic way to create signal precisely so we can learn from the application of those rules, which ones work better than others and apply machine learning to that. Um, and so to the extent we can automate the learning process, we want to. But we have plenty of cases where the real problem is getting the data pulled together in the right straight shape or structure such that we can learn from it. And Gary and I have had numerous discussions within this company about to what degree can you automate that process and to what degree is that still an art rather than an automatable process. Not the art of the math. There seems to be pretty well understood ways once you have relevant data pulled together to try various learning systems and figure out what's the best predictive model, but rather the art of getting the data into a reasonable state in the first place. And computers are so powerful now and so fast that there's, you know, there's a lot of discussion going on right now that you can try all possible permutations as part of the computing thing. What I, we've been looking at though, is we've been trying to structure the systems so that it is very easy for you to describe pretty much what Gary just said, which is I'm gonna try something and I will describe basically, um, based on an outcome, whether this was a good outcome or a bad outcome. And then I will ask the system to start picking the ones that work and not picking the ones that don't work based on that outcome. And that is pretty easy for us to automate. And that's as we take the burden off the consumer and the user essentially is training the system. As Gary said earlier, I mean, a great example that we all have a little bit of angst about is whenever someone on the customer service desk automatically answers um, something or picks an automated response and says that's the right response, he or she is training the system to the point where ultimately you might not need the customer service desk. And you know that is and, and that is actually the goal is to train that system to do at least as good or better a job in answering 99% of the questions. And so let humans just deal with the 1% that don't aren't susceptible to that. But the actual the actual business right now is a little bit like good UX design. Right now, there is no magic that we figured out for how you can just automate good UX design. It's why design-centric product design has become so prevalent as we moved in this new age. And it's very similar, like, you know, we're still seeing that our, our customers are not hiring fewer data scientists, they're hiring way more. You know, when I started doing this, I expected that maybe five or 10% of our customers would have data scientists looking at the data. Um, at this stage, I would say it's roughly 85%. Now we're going to big customers and they can afford that, but it's pretty interesting to see that something like 85% of the customers I'm working with already have hired a bunch of data scientists. They already have them looking for data and they already have them working on this. So, because they have to, because they simply can't afford not to apply this expertise 
to looking at the data. Otherwise, they can't take advantage of it. So, you know, we're, we're wrestling with this. We're wrestling with how do you democratize it. And where we can, which is mostly about automating the engagement patterns for human behavior, we're starting to try and automate that. Where, we, where it's harder, like, for example, recognizing that a computer, will, um, I'm sorry, an engine will fail in a car, you know, but, but where the signal is very distant from the, from the actual outcome and trying to correlate them is not easy. Right now, we're telling them they need data scientists and we're trying to figure out how could we help our customers do that more easily. But democratizing that is still something I think is a little harder than Jerry said. Democratizing the process of practicing it. Yes, everyone who's ever involved in any system that's self-learning is training that system. But building that system for any given signal is not always so easy, in my view. I'll take a first step because Gary will be more articulate and I would rather go first. Um, the, you know, the truth is, I think what we're seeing is the beginning of an age where enormous amounts of business processes are basically automated data, artificial intelligence. And that you're right, they run automatically and almost scarily um, to take advantage of all the signal coming in because it's not possible to keep up with it algorithmically. And as Gary said earlier, um, given enough signal, the data science has started to beat the algorithms. And that was, I first saw that when I was at Google. Um, I were looking at click-through rate on ads. Click-through rate on ads is a startlingly easy thing to measure. And the data science started picking what ads should be there to be clicked on, and it began to beat anyone else's algorithm. And you know, as hard as they tried, no one could catch up. And you know, that was, <laughs> that was, 11, 12 years ago, and I was watching this going, okay, that is the future. You know, So the implications, to be blunt, are you have to harness this stuff. If you don't harness this stuff, you are ba it's essentially trying to bring your goods to market in a horse and buggy when other people are driving trucks. You, you will not be competitive. You will not be up to date. You will not actually be able to do as good a job meeting your customers' needs as someone else who says, I can actually learn from this data and I can write a self-improving system and I can actually use the customers in the way Gary described to help train that system. You're just going to lose. And so the implications are that the business processes increasingly will be automated. And you know, we hear a lot about deep learning these days, which you know, involves, again, other kinds of technologies that were relatively well understood a while ago, but simply weren't cost effective. But again, those systems people start to rely on them. They're gonna rely on them for image recognition. They're gonna rely on them for recognizing whether or not something is, a good, um, is actionable or not. And those business processes are gonna be baked in in very subtle ways. And uh, you know, very concretely, and then I'll hand it off to Gary. Um, my, I, I had a gift I was rushing to my wife um, for her birthday a few, couple, few months ago. And Came home on her birthday. I had Amazon rushing it to be there in two days. Checked um, Uber. My ride was on the way to our, you know, where I was taking her out for dinner. Checked Open Table. The reservation was fine. Went to look for the gift, and there was no gift. But I had an astonishing piece of email that had just come in and said, "Your product was damaged in shipping. We are really sorry. We have rushed you a new copy, and it will be there tomorrow morning." Now, what was impressive wasn't the level of customer service, though that was nice. What was impressive was thinking that through and realizing that was a completely automated response. You know, that fundamentally a business process for figuring out was I worth rushing it to? Was it possible to rush that gift to me? And, and getting that gift rushed to me, and sure enough, at 10 o'clock the next morning, I dropped it off. That business process had almost certainly used intelligence and learning to figure out the optimal strategy for me, the customer, specific to who I am and how much I buy from Amazon, and taking the cost and the hit to do that. And that's, that's not going to go away, right? That kind of constant use of intelligence as opposed to some programmer writing a set of rules and saying, here are the rules, you know, my code for what we're going to do. Here are the algorithms. You know, increasingly it won't be algorithms. 
it'll be data science. And the only time when it'll be algorithms is when you're jumpstarting the system, you don't have enough response to start doing that learning. You're just getting the data up and going, but it's really priming the pump in my opinion. Gary? Yeah, I think, I think um, Adam pretty much nailed it. I want to just, I want to riff off of what he, what he just said and spice it up with a, with a couple of anecdotes. Um, but here's, here's the headline. Here's the summary. Um, the pattern that we spoke about before, where you can design an application to be self-improving by having a feedback loop with the user, where the user is giving some sort of indication as to whether the system's working well or not, that can be generalized and expanded to the whole of a company's performance. And I think Google was really, as Adam said, really the first company to really kind of master that pattern. But um, a little bit of, um, of information, a little bit of an anecdote, if you will, about how that evolved. So I was involved, I was the chief scientist uh, or chief science officer of a company called Overture that invented paid search. Paid search in the very first incarnation of it was a very human intensive activity. So we at Overture employed human editors to review every single uh, listing that went on. We had an editorial standard on what could be matched in terms of a query to a listing that had to be met or exceeded. And the idea of introducing a, a, a fuzzy matching algorithm that had some intelligence on it was at that time not acceptable to our constituents because uh, they wanted to understand, they wanted to have transparency with how the system worked. So we created the business model, but we right away had painted ourselves into a corner. We weren't allowed to really clearly innovate in a way that would, that would be you know, less than transparent. But what we could do is we could, we could do some things like, you know, people understood what a spell corrector was and that, and that for example, the time, uh, we probably had uh, 24 different variations of how people would commonly misspell Britney Spears as a search term. And so you can imagine that if you could automatically figure out all the different ways of misspelling something like Britney Spears and mapping it to a canonical answer, that's a good thing for the user and that they'll understand. So, uh, you know, it was around 2002 where we built a spell corrector um, of that nature. It had to operate in five milliseconds and it processed about 60% of all of the queries around the world going to all the different search engines. That's kind of the scope that we had. And that system was able to improve and, and in five milliseconds could, could you know, correct the, the misspelling of Britney Spears and among other things. And what was amazing it was, was when we turned that on, that created tens of millions of dollars of found revenue for Overture, the company. Tens of millions uh, at that time, just from spell correction which is truly kind of mind boggling when you think about it. And so this was for us a real indicator that if we, you know, if we were going to succeed, what we had to do was we had to make our system self-improving. We had to actually analyze the flow of the data and change the functioning of the business um, as a result. Now, I had said earlier that we had kind of painted ourselves into a corner and Google had the good fortune of, of arriving second into this particular race, and they designed it right on day one to be a self-improving system. So they used click-through rates as a way of assessing search quality rather than, say, a human editor. They had self-serve models for how, for how uh, both uh, customers and uh, uh, would sign up for advertising or how uh, distribution partners would sign up uh, to show ads. They, they really automated the whole thing. And as a result, whereas we had many humans in the loop for trying to automate it, they did not have a human in the loop and they could actually uh, do the whole thing algorithmically. And so what happened was, is that that in, in, a, in, in a span of about 18 months, um, Overture was asleep at the wheel because of the, you know, they were kind of uh, acquired by Yahoo. And as, as we all know, acquisitions, uh, big acquisitions sometimes slows things down. Google had the benefit of, of, of accelerating that process and they went on to kind of conquer the world in some ways, the world of paid search as a result. So the, the bottom line here, and in answer to your question, what, what, do your, what does your audience really need to think about? I think the answer is how can you reframe, re-express your, your business to be more like Google 
or to be more like one of these other canonical companies that is optimizing their very business, their very business model through the flow of data and information that flows through it. And so how can you get that feedback loop? How can you architect your whole business? So equivalent of that, that, that instrumentation of the user giving some correction to the system. That could be the, you know, a customer complaining, a customer sending a thank you, or any number of, of signals that customers give us explicitly and implicitly for how we're doing our jobs. And using that to literally improve the performance of the whole company is, I think, is the future. We have just a, a few minutes left. We're, we're just about out of time. So Adam, maybe some final thoughts from you on what we've just been talking about and especially this implication on customers, their business models, the things that you were talking about and Gary was just talking about. And then Gary, we'll come back to you for final thoughts and that'll be that. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, Gary picked one of my favorite examples. When I got to Google, I wondered how was it that I could, there was essentially this universal magic spell checker that knew every first name and last name of everybody in the world. And I went around and asked, and it was really just brute force data. Every time you typed anything and no one clicked and then typed something else and did click, it was a possible misspelling. If you got a certain number, it was a probable misspelling. If you got a certain ratio, you know, it was a certain misspelling. It didn't even require machine learning. It was unbelievably efficient brute force. Yeah, statistics. And, <laughs> right. And I think, you know, I, I, my mind, you know, my jaw dropped because, because they designed the system, the way Gary just said, they designed the system to be self-learning by counting. I mean, this did not require LDA or LSA. I mean, this was, you know, counting. They had built this beautiful thing. And I think that, you know, I can do no, no better in the last minute than to say what Gary just said, which is to the extent you can design every system to have a feedback loop. And the feedback loop tells you basically whether something is working or not working. And then you can figure out, on better yet, what did work. Like when my son asks Alexa to play a song and doesn't understand and he asks again, I am sure Amazon is trying to then learn how could they have understood that song in the first place. And if they're not, they should be. And you know that, um, that feedback loop is everything. Because if you can design the system to just count you know, never mind do data science. Already you can do an extraordinary job compared to what you would do if you didn't design the system that way. So I think Gary nailed it. That is, that is the essence, and it's so simple to start with. The essence of what we're learning is take your data, take your customer's actions, and use the combination to learn how to deliver better service. And uh, Adam, just uh, very quickly, any advice that you have for your customers and for the people that are listening in relation to well we tell them all the same thing we say look it's a whole new world it's like when the web came along and it was a whole new world pick some very simple things to start with pick some subset of the signal you care about build a lot of pocs very fast and we try to help them build a very agile platform test them all get them learning and learn as you go don't try and boil the ocean don't try and rebuild your entire business at once pick the most simple most valuable thing you can think of do that now think the next most valuable next the most simple thing do that. Try seven or eight or nine riffs on that. Um, just be super agile, super fast, um, just as we used to be with websites. Um, start learning how to do and operate in this new world because the sooner you learn, the sooner you'll get good at it. And Gary Flake, you'll get the, the last word here. What's your advice and your the, the distillation of everything that you know and what you can share with uh, your customers right now in about a minute. <laughs> well, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the outlook that and the advice that Adam just gave uh, for the immediate and near-term future, I, you know, I think, I, I don't think I can improve upon that. But what I'll do is I'll, I'll make an attempt of extrapolating this out a little bit further into the future. Um, we talked about this virtuous cycle, this feedback loop, uh, as, as something to embed within an application and also as something to embed within a business. The, all, there's also a great deal of discussion and debate and concern around the future of, of artificial intelligence and uh, the future of humanity and what, what this means. And depending on who you talk to, you'll hear uh, two very different stories. One is that's uh, 
that there's uh, we're on the threshold of an AI uh, utopia, and then we're on another threshold of the AI apocalypse. And so, depending on on who you believe, you could you could either take a very optimistic or pessimistic view of the future. I think that the more likely path is actually a third path uh, that's a little bit in the middle. And that is taking that feedback loop and applying it to one, one person. Uh, in the future, we will be interacting uh, with our environment, uh, both in, in, in the raw, okay, in the sense that as, as we do today, uh, but we will also be interacting uh, in the environment through some layer that is effectively assisted uh, with, the, with, with some of these technologies. And if you think about how that feedback loop as applied to one would operate, it could actually be something that is really revolutionary for, for one person uh, and what they can do and what they could be capable of doing. And so my, my whole thing is don't fear uh, the future. Uh, don't fear the, um, the AI apocalypse or the AI utopia. Instead, I think that there's going to be a world in which humans and machines are actually working together in a way that the combination is much more powerful than any one piece alone. And so the, the, to the doomsayers or the, the people that, that fear for humanity, I say that, they're, they're, yes, AIs will become incredibly powerful, but there will always be one thing that's much more powerful than an AI, and that is a human working in conjunction with an AI. Okay, wow. This has been uh, a fascinating conversation with Gary Flake and Adam Bosworth from Salesforce. Gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time and talking with us today. My pleasure. It's been, it's been great. You have been listening to episode number 171 of CXO Talk. Come back next week. We'll be talking with the Chief Technology Officer of Accenture. And... Thank you as well to Kathleen Obata and Michael Ellis from Salesforce for helping us get all of this set up. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week, and we'll talk with you soon.